Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. A recurring phenomenon traced in these pages, writes Ted Joya in his new book, Music, A Subversive History, a surprisingly consistent one, despite marked differences in epics and cultures, finds innovations coming from disruptive outsiders who shake up the very same institutions that later lay claim to them. This is just one of tens or perhaps hundreds of insights in Joya's book scattered across its pages, including the importance of bells to music history, the sacrificial ritual of a musician's death, and the reason for similarity in the music of societies who herd animals for, as a lifestyle. And Joya concludes this feast with a list of 40 points that is titled, This is Not a Manifesto, which for me was pretty much the same as vowing not to think about dancing purple elephants for the next five minutes. See if you can do that. Ted Joya has written 11 books, and this makes at least the fifth book he's written on music history. He is a noted and notable critic and is also a jazz pianist who in the 1980s worked to establish a jazz studies program at his alma mater, Stanford University. Ted Joya, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me on as a guest. So uh, what number is this? Is it the fourth or fifth book of music history that you've written, or sixth or seventh? Well, all my books, to some extent, tell the history of music. Some of them sort of drift into what you might call cultural criticism. Yeah, but I, I don't. I actually think any one of them, if you if you wanted to, you could say was a work of music history. So you, uh, you are you began. Uh, you're a musician who worked in other jobs, I guess, to support your art habit. Was that would that be right? Well, yes. No, I've I've had a a, a strange career. And I often tell people in advance that I can't make sense of it myself, so they shouldn't feel uh, bad. But, you know, my curiously enough, I am well known as a, as a music historian, but I have no degree in music. Uh -huh. I have a degree in English literature from Stanford. I studied philosophy at Oxford. Hmm. I uh, did a, a business degree, an MBA from Stanford's business school. I've done all sorts of things, and... I like to think that having these kinds of different perspectives empowers me as a writer on music. But the oddity is that I'm best known for the one subject I've got no credential in. <laughs> but Professor Wikipedia uh, informs me that you had a piano in your office for a long time. I mean, well, I, I did. I, you know, it, you know, I, I, I was working on Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park, which is like the Wall Street adventure capital. And I did have a piano in the office. And the curious thing is people would come to, to meet with me that, that didn't know me very well. And I was always interested. They never asked why the piano. <laughs> I could see them looking at out of the corner of their eye you know, at the instrument. They were, they were always too polite to say, what in the world are you doing with a piano here? But no, that is true. So you, you, this is a big book. You've written other, all, your, all these books which have something to do with music history. So what is the itch? that music history scratches. What was the, there must be a, a preoccupation that you identified early on that you wanted to address. I mean. Well, this book in particular started a long time ago. And I can tell by looking at my journals that I was taking down notes that would lead to my new book in 1991. Hmm. That's, it's almost scary to think that you can embark upon a project that takes more than a quarter of a century. That's a good project. 
You know, I mean, that's 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 almost frightening to think about. Mm -hmm. But I can remember the original impetus was a question that was both historical and like many of the things I asked, very practical as well. And the question I asked myself was, how does music change people's lives? Mm -hmm. And this team seemed to me the most fundamental question you could ask about music. Yet from the point of view of music history, no one had ever asked it. There were plenty of books on music history, but I couldn't find one that told the history of music as a change agent in human life. <laughs> and so I started looking into that, and this took me on a wild road because I had to start looking in different sources than most music historians consider. I had to dig into things like folklore, mythology, <laughs> cognitive psychology, neuroscience, human biology. I had to look into people's diaries and travel literature and journals and medieval chronicles. I, it literally took me 10 years before I could even begin to wrap my hands around this question. And then finally, in 2006, I started publishing some of my research. And now the culminating point is when I've written this complete history of music from the point of view of how it changes people's lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you work? Um, you mentioned the journal. Uh, I know from reading this book that you have a heck of a lot of books about music in your library. You obviously have lots of recordings that you listen to. Before we began, you, you were saying how you were listening to an old recording from 1910, 1911, just before we talked. Um, how does that work? Uh, it, it's because it, it, as I realized as I was as I was reading this, I, you are it you are adept at a different language, one I can't speak, as it were. Um, so being a music historian is like working in multiple different languages. Well, I'm often asked advice from younger music writers or people that want to be critics or journalists or scholars, and I actually have a lot of suggestions I give them, but there's one that's just huge. To mm -hmm. me, this is the most decisive thing that I did and really made it possible for me to write the books I've written. And the way I conceptualize it is almost in terms of input and output. And what I tell them is, in your life, people are going to judge you by your output. And I don't care where you're working. Whether you're a writer like me, people are going to judge me, obviously, by my books. If you're working on the factory line, people are going to judge you by how many widgets you make a day. Your boss always wants to know your output. Now, the funny thing is no one ever asks you about your inputs. But this is the most critical thing in terms of long-term success. Mm -hmm. And so my basic strategy is I spend two hours a day writing. But I spend three to four hours a day reading. Mm -hmm. And I spend another two or three hours a day listening to music. And the basic premise here is for me or for anyone to have good output, you must have really good input. So you have to really be concerned. What am I learning? What did I learn today? What did I read today? What am I going to learn next week? And you should have everybody. And I don't, this is not just for historians, but anybody, everybody should have a plan for their inputs. And especially because this is the one thing the boss never asks about. This is the one thing the teachers never ask about. So this is the one thing your audience, your public never asked about. So you have to take personal responsibility for it. 
What, what's so a plan for, what's a plan for the input? This is managing my inputs, and if you do that over a period of 20, 30 years, it's amazing the things you learn. What's a plan for inputs? What's, what's that look like? What, can you give an example from your own work? Well, in one, here's one of the things I do is I take subjects that I want to know more about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the problems in a book like the one I've written is there's a real risk as a generalist I'm going to fall short in some way. I'm going to I'm going to miss out. I un, I believe there's great value in having a multidisciplinary uh, and 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 sort of cross hybridization type of approach. But as soon as you start approaching multiple fields, you really risk becoming a, an amateur or a dilettante. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I do is I map out areas I want to learn about, and then I intensively read five, ten, fifteen, twenty as many as 50 books in that field, and then move on. So it might be uh, studying uh, shamanism mm -hmm. or religious belief or uh, the relationship between music and physiology or whatever. So what I do is, uh, is I dig into a subject, and I might spend several months just on that facet, and then I move on to the next. And the value of this is I maintain the extraordinary value of being a generalist, so I can see across the disciplinary lines, but I try to avoid the the narrowness of the, the amateur or the dilettante. Do you uh, keep track of these? Is this you put these down in your journal? You say I, I need to learn about shamanism in your journal, and you start to look for books on that, or how do you keep track of this when you say you, you met? Originally, I was journaling. Now I I, I now that I, I do with these things. On computer, I have notes I take on different subjects. Mm -hmm. So for the book I just wrote, if you went into my computer files, Al, it would be, it's like a maze. <laughs> I would have hundreds of documents. And they one might be called the use of musical uh, musical instruments as weapons. Yeah. Or another one as music as a force of social control. Or... Uh, the relationship between dance and the symphony. You know, so I've got, I've, got, I've got hundreds of these files, and when I get ideas or concepts in them, I write them down. So these are, and I'm sorry to get on this very practical, about how do you keep track of all those things? It's, well, I don't do as good a job as I probably should, but I feel that if, if I write it down, I can always go into my computer and do a word search and say, you know, where did I where where did I write about uh, uh, Pythagoras or something? And it will, it will show me all the files on my computer that mention. I can sort of retrace my steps. Uh, and sometimes some of the book just came straight out of these notes. I just it, it was a beautiful thing. I could copy and paste. <laughs> that's rarely that's rarely the case because the notes you've got to be very expansive. But I've got a lot of pots in the fire. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And a book like this that covers 4,000 years of music history, drawing on research over 25 years, yeah. uh, it, just controlling the subject is a major challenge. So meditating on the book, it, it struck me um, something that you, you say in the book, uh, you, I've, uh, seen, you've said elsewhere, uh, that one of the biggest problems in trying to – for for us to grasp this uh, this history of of music is that we insist on seeing music as a diversion, as entertainment, as something we do after we're done working, 
Um, you quote Steven Pinker, uh, his uh, awful phrase that music is just auditory cheesecake. Um, and that seems to be one of you have many targets in the book. That view is not just a target, but sort of an obstacle that you kind of have to bulldoze aside and have to keep on bulldozing to, to refresh us uh, and give us new ears. Is, is that right? Am I, am I on? Well, absolutely. In fact, when I sat down with my publisher early on in this process, I said to them, you know, I'm one of these rare people. I can actually sum up my whole life's scholarly agenda in one sentence. <laughs> and they were skeptical. And I said, no, no, this is what I write about. I believe this. And, and it's as follows. I believe that music is a source of power. And it's a force of enchantment and a change agent in human life. Mm -hmm. And that's a simple sentence to say. But once you think about it, you realize this is completely at odds with how everybody else, for the most part, views music. Yes. Music is part of the entertainment industry right now. It's considered to be a diversion. It's something you do after the day is done to relax. You know, Steven Pinker, who you mentioned, even came up with that great phrase that music is auditory cheesecake. It's nothing more than brain stimulation. In his mind, it's no different than drinking a martini or or a recreational drug. And this is so far afield from what I believe. And I felt that it's all the more important, given the current culture, to tell the story of music as a force of power. Because mm -hmm. that's an amazing story. And it's one that not only allows us to understand history better, but it might allow us to understand ways of revitalizing our musical culture. Mm -hmm. Yes, you say that uh, this all comes down to your taking Aristotle seriously. Could you explain that? Well, that's right. You know, it's interesting. If you go into the great works of ancient political philosophy, you know, Plato's Republic, the laws, Aristotle's politics, it's amazing how much they talk about music. Mm -hmm. Now, today, we wouldn't think that music is political, you wouldn't turn on CNN on election night and expect to hear them talking about songs. But for Aristotle, for example, music was essential to understanding our life as individuals and as members of a political community. And there's an amazing passage in Aristotle where he talks about the value of music. It's in the politics. And he, and he gives a long list. I mean, he'll tell you that music makes the soldier brave in battle. Music makes us live better lives, more virtuous lives. Music makes the workers' toil more endurable. Music has the power to, to, to heal, to change moods, even to change our body. And he goes on and on. And then finally, at the end of the list, he says almost as an afterthought, and it's entertaining. <laughs> and for Aristotle, that was the last thing on the list. In our own time, we tend to have forgotten all those other elements, and one of the purposes of my music history book was to show all these extraordinary things music does, and still does in the, in the current day. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could give you many examples. It's amazing. The, 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 do you know that 60% of surgeons listen to music while they're cutting you open and operating on you, and they believe it enhances their performance? I'm actually surprised that's that low. You know, and you have... Increasingly, high-performance athletes are using playlists as part of their training regimen. Mm -hmm. And we know now that if you play in a drum circle for 10 minutes, your blood cell count changes and your immune system gets stronger. I mean, I could give, I could give hundreds of examples of these, the, the power that music has. But we live in a culture 
that doesn't want to hear it and wants to reduce music to this light diversion. It's also interesting that we have to use we have to use some sort of scientific study to demonstrate that. When I, I think, I mean, as your book manif- manifests, uh, basically a fifteen minute study of a few incidents of history with your head adjusted sideways to see it correctly, um, you'll see the same thing. Well, all you need to do is to open up the newspaper. Right. You know, hardly a week goes by when I don't read about music showing somewhere uh, its political power. Mm-hmm. I mean, just in the last few days, I'll give us some examples. In Hong Kong, there have been all these songs used in the protests, some of them that would seem almost having nothing to do with politics. Yep. Uh, and I read recently about a composer wrote this protest anthem in Hong Kong, and he has to remain anonymous because it's so dangerous to be the composer, and the people who sing it have to wear a mask while they're singing. Clear example, the music's not diversion. It's powerful and feared by the authorities. Yeah. In, in yeah. Uh, Lebanon, a week ago, the people were using the Baby Shark song <laughs> as a protest theme. A few weeks ago, a rap song was released in Thailand, uh, critical of the government. Uh-huh. And the government was so afraid of this, they had to release their own rap song in response, which was, of course, mocked and ridiculed. But these governments understand full well that music is not light entertainment. They understand the power of it. So we need to inform our musical thinking and, and for me, our history of music so that we grasp these larger powers. Yeah, I I think I came across – I think I realized this point by teaching Plato uh, because, uh, of course, none of this would surprise Plato. The Republic, no, absolutely. No, I mean this is the whole point. But my students, of course, didn't see that as that. They thought they thought Plato was bad because he's trying to prevent entertainment, and then and they didn't realize that Plato was is is playing for much higher stakes, um, as are the people in Hong Kong and Thailand and Lebanon. Well, if you take what Plato says, and a lot of times people are confused because they'll read some passages where Plato says how dangerous music is, and then a few pages later he'll say, we need to have music as part of the education system. And so people are, are, are asking themselves, well, what's going on? Does he like music or does he not? But they don't, what they don't grasp is that Plato saw that there were two kinds of music. There was a music that upheld a virtue, that upheld the, the, the community, that led to orderliness, uh, that made life better, but there was a different kind of music that he feared that was dangerous, that was subversive, that could could incite passions in a bad way. All I've got to say is nothing has changed. No. You talk about talk to parents about the music their children listen to, and you see they're just like Plato. So yeah. this concept that, that music is, is just a, a form of light entertainment you don't need to worry about, uh, history has proven again and again that's not so. Mm-hmm. Um, that's This is an example of how uh, oftentimes – when I'm talking about, say, 18th or 19th century America, I'll say to my students, I've said to my students something they never really have thought about, is that up until really the radio, because people couldn't afford a gramophone, if you, for most people, if you wanted to hear music, you had to produce it yourself. Um, yet, um, it's another example that you give is that we always think of music as involving a performer and an audience, which is a very, such a, it's a, such a recent notion. It's one of the many sort of notions that we have, these sort of, um, these things that we believe that just aren't so, these engravings in our head, as we call it in historically thinking. 
these engravings that prevent us from actually uh, seeing the way things were. Well, you know, this is a fascinating topic, and it's another one where the perception is so different from the reality. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a, a, a music writer, pretty well known, who's written a number of books, and he told me, he said, Ted, the audience really decides everything. All music is created with an audience in mind. And I said, that's, that's not true at all. He said, no, 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 Ted, all music is created with an audience in mind. And then I said, I think I probably gave him 20 examples to the contrary. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, you're living in a village in Eastern Europe in the 19th century, and there's a dance at the wedding reception. You're all up dancing. Who's the audience? Mm -hmm. you know, everybody, in, in a situation like that, every, everybody is the participant. Mm -hmm. You don't have this distinction from the audience. When, I, when a congregation gets up and sings, who's the audience? God, the audience. Well, I mean, that's a very, that's a very convoluted aesthetic stance to take. Yeah. Uh, when people sing the national anthem, who's the audience? <laughs> you know, in many traditional communities, there is no word for audience. You go to some of these societies, the, the idea that music has a performer and audience is foreign to them because everybody in the community participates in these rituals. Uh, when I'm driving to to work and I'm singing along with the radio in my car, who's the audience? I mean, mm -hmm. the, in fact, when you look at it. What you find is in most times and places in human history, there is no audience. And, and when you start viewing music solely on the basis of that, you've already been corrupted by the thinking of the entertainment industry, which is music is a commodity, you sell it to a consumer, et cetera, et cetera. And when you start applying those notions to history, you'll end up learning nothing because the first thing you've got to grasp is the audience is a very late construct. Mm -hmm. So there are... 28 chapters in this, not counting epilogue, uh, the manifesto that is not a manifesto, and the introduction. So I want to just cover a couple of the chapter topics and have you respond to them. Um, you, you have a you have great chapter titles, by the way. I really was extremely envious. Of oh, thank you. One of them is Music History as a Battle Between Magic and Mathematics. Uh, please explain yourself. Well, this, I think, is the most important change in music history. And, and once again, it's completely ignored. But 2,500 years ago, someone in ancient Greece decided that all songs need to be played in tune, that every note had to be mathematically precisely adjusted so that it was in tune, and all the notes in the scale were tuned with respect to each other, and that anything that wasn't in this scale was excluded from music. And the person who reportedly did that was the philosopher Pythagoras. But in fact, this is an amazing notion. And in most parts of the world, no one ever did this. You go, if you went to Africa, uh, in um, traditional societies there, and asked them when they tuned their instruments, they would look at you in incomprehension. And the idea that you'd only play certain notes that were mathematically precisely defined uh, would have been a great shock to them. And I look at uh, this extraordinary path Western music went down by defining everything mathematically. And then you see in the 20th century how it's all overturned by African-American musicians. Mm -hmm. You know, in the blues, you bent notes. Mm -hmm. In the blues, you distorted tones. In jazz, you distorted sounds. And this whole notion of playing in tune was challenged. And what this did is it reinvigorated 
Western music, after 2,500 years of dominance by mathematics, a whole different aesthetic came in. And to me, in many ways, this is the most interesting transition point in the history of modern music. Mm -hmm. Could you, um, so what did Pythagoras, I, I, I'm still, for those of us who aren't musically inclined, how does, how does, um, how does Pythagoras mathematize uh, magic uh, or replace magic? Because certainly music is somehow still magical, even when it's mathematical. Well, yeah, no, you're, you're right. There's a whole, there's a whole different story here. In addition to mathematically defining the notes, there was this movement in ancient Greece around 500 BC to turn music into something rational. This was the birth of Greek rationalism. Mm -hmm. And previously, music had been magical, even in Greek culture. Uh, you probably are familiar with the myth of Orpheus, sure. the, the Greek musician who went to the underworld and, and brought his lover back to life by playing a song. And this is an extraordinary concept, but even as late as the Pythagorean era, the philosopher Empedocles claimed that with his musical magic, he could raise a corpse from the dead. Now, this was such an embarrassment to Greek culture that when they put out the edition of Empedocles for philosophy students, they left out that passage because it was too shameful and embarrassing. <laughs> but this gives you a real sense of the conflict in music. Music is a source of magic or music as a rationally defined mathematical science. And once you understand that conflict, you begin seeing that this notion of music as magic has never disappeared. It's continued to exist on the fringes of our musical culture, and for very good reason, because music does have power. You know, I'll just add one last thing here, and this is fascinating. Uh, three years ago in UCLA, they were able to take someone in a coma and bring them back to consciousness with ultrasound. <laughs> it's a small device. It's about as large as your, as your smartphone. They were able to bring this person back. The resemblance between that and the myth of Orpheus is uncanny. <laughs> uh, and, just, and just reminds us of the kinds of power sound has that we don't normally recognize. Mm -hmm. You uh, say uh, a bit later on after this, the chapter we, I just referred to that there's we have a, this Marxist stratification that you're talking about is our most lasting legacy from the Greeks. From this juncture onward, you write, we seek in vain for a unified musical culture in the Western world. What do you mean by that? Well, once you got into this platonic notion that there are two kinds of music, there's one that upholds society and one that endangers society. Mm -hmm. From that point onward, you find something interesting. The music history books tend to discuss the official music. And by official, I mean this was the music that was sanctioned as acceptable. It pleased the ruler. It pleased the religious authorities. But we now can tell that at every juncture in human history, there's been a second kind of music that was denounced, censored, forbidden, and mostly hidden from view. And part of why it took me 25 years to write this book was I had to uncover this music that's been hidden from view. I'll just give you one example. Give, it, one give, example. give two or three. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, it's very interesting if you look at the first thousand years of Christianity. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a thousand years. And during that period, no secular songs in the common language of the people in Europe has survived. 
Now we've got religious songs, we've got songs in Latin, but for example, a love song that somebody in France might have sung in the year 500 or 600, none of that has survived. Now, can we surmise that they didn't exist? No. Well, in fact, we know they exist. We know they existed in large numbers, and the reason we know about it is because of how frequently these songs were attacked by the church. Mm -hmm. We have hundreds of sermons, church council proclamations, uh, declarations by the Pope, all of them saying there's this dangerous music out there. The people are singing these dangerous songs. They're sexy. They're, they're sacrilegious. They're sinful. They are uh, destroying the community. And we know that these proclamations from the church had no impact in getting rid of these songs because they kept on making the same denunciations for a thousand years. That sounds very contemporary. Yeah, no, no it's very, it is very contemporary. So I mean, yeah. it's, it's fascinating to consider. Here we've got a thousand-year period where none of these songs have survived. Yet we know that they were a vibrant part of the day-to-day -day life of most people. So that, I mean, this, was in, this gives you an idea of what I'm trying to write about in my book. Mm -hmm. is this whole history of music that as soon as you begin to write your music history based on what has been preserved by the authorities, you're never going to understand how music changes people's lives. Imagine, imagine in our own time, if all the music attacked by religious authorities and community leaders and parents disappeared from the music books. How reliable would those books be? But that's exactly the situation we have to live with as music historians. Mm -hmm. What's another example? Okay, another example is take the greatest breakthrough in Western music. This is when the troubadours, the nobles in the south of France, mm -hmm. began singing about love mm -hmm. and their personal emotions. Now, we take for granted now that a song reflects the emotion of the singer, but that wasn't true before that time. In fact, the singers were mostly anonymous, and they sang about uh, God and country. But all of a sudden, people are singing about their personal emotions. And these nobles in the south of France become famous as the first troubadours. Written out of the whole history of music, though, is the fact that these songs of personal expression and love were originated 200 years earlier by female slave singers in the Muslim world. Hmm. And they sang about the exact same things the troubadours sang about. But they were excluded from the history books for the same reason that they were the underclass. They're the hmm. outsider. They're the slave. They're the bohemian. They're the renegade. So it, it's a beautiful example, or not so beautiful example, of how the ruling class dictates what's said in the history books. But in fact, you find again and again that the outsider creates these innovations long before they enter the mainstream of society. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen that in our own lifetime. I mean, those of us who grew up with rock and roll, we understood how much the Rolling Stones and the Beatles were feared. But nowadays, those bad boys are Sir Paul McCartney and, and Sir <laughs> Mick Jagger. Yeah. 50 years ago, Bob Dylan was the, was the head of the counterculture mm -hmm. and was viewed as a dangerous figure by the mainstream. 50 years later, he gets the Nobel Prize in Literature. So we see the same thing in our culture is there's a dangerous sound, it becomes mainstreamed, and then the history book is rewritten to reflect that new interpretation. Well, I, I was thinking this is almost a proof of how culture works. Uh, it, uh, if it can't, culture usually exists to provide, this is a kind of a, a Philip Reef point, this is a, exists to 
provide guardrails for certain behaviors or for certain actions. Um, it has an admonitory, it has a punitive function often. And when that fails, it has a jujitsu jiu function, a judo function, which it can bring things back off the road and then reintegrate. Maybe the road goes in a different direction now. This is the metaphors game really mixed, but it, it has not just the punitive, but also then the, um, the jujitsu function as well. Well, that became the most fascinating part of the story. It, it early became clear to me that there was this outsider music that the authorities feared. Mm. But the second part of the story was in many ways fa more fascinating. It became increasingly clear to me that the ruling powers also needed this music because it was a source of vitality and energy, and it had influence over the populace. So the, the more interesting part of the story is how the ruling powers take the music they initially attack mm -hmm. and denounce and try to clean it up and mainstream it. And there, once again, there are many examples of that. So you have opera coming out in Italy, and it's full of scandalous sex stories. And the church tries to stop it. At a certain point, the church decides that it, would, it will do its own operas. Mm -hmm. And so they do all these operas about the lives of saints. And they're, and they're surprised that no one wants to go <laughs> see, see these operas. And, you know, I, I lived that in my, my youth where... Uh, Rock and roll was denounced by churches, and then at a certain point, they started to have guitar services where they would have guitar players perform during the religious service. So the idea is we will try to assimilate it. And there's a whole history of you know Christian hip-hop or whatever, Christian heavy metal, where there's an attempt to take the very sounds they feared and assimilate them. And it's, it's, it's a process that's actually been going on in our cultures for thousands of years. Um, just a brief detour. Well, not a brief detour. This fits in right, right with this. Um, it, you uh, discuss in the chapter called The Devil Songs, you're talking about sin and Christianity. And there seems to be a, a deeper, I wouldn't say that, that Paul and the early Christians have picked up on the Greek dichotomy. It's actually more interesting than that. There's a way uh, you point out that Paul at one place says that you're supposed to sing, uh, make melody in your heart to the Lord, which draws upon the idea of, of music as magic. Um, or of at least of it, it being a counteraction to intoxication. Or I would even say that the only way you can speak to the divine ultimately uh, in the most freeing way is through music, uh, that there's eventually you have to go beyond words. Um, but you also then you also uh, use music as a source of teachable moments. Um, and those are in um, you say are in a result. Uh, there's a resulting tension which has never been adequately uh, adequately a resulting tension that's never been adequately resolved. It seems to me a very creative tension. Well, it is, and it's it's a fascinating part of the story because you know one of the things people ask me is, you, Ted, you say there's this whole secret history of music that can't be true. Why would people not want to talk about the real history of music? Mm. And I say the reason is because once you understand the real engine of innovation in music, you find it's always linked to shameful, embarrassing things. Sex, violence, magic, altered mind states, trance, supernatural elements, generational conflict, warfare. These are the engines of innovation in music, and they're, they're embarrassing things in many instances. You don't want to sing about, you know, sex and trances. And particularly when you get to religion and religious music, you've now entered an extraordinary subject because 
as we all know, music is a pathway to an altered mind state. It's a path to ecstasy and transcendence. You go back to the ancient shamans that got into trances. They would get into these trances through drumming and musical states, and that was the power of their whole craft. Now, here's the, the challenge, though, is those kinds of ecstatic trance states are often incompatible with an organized religion. In fact, if everybody in the church starts going into a trance, it soon starts looking like a disorganized religion. Yeah, who's going to bring anything to potluck? No, absolutely. And so here's the problem the churches understand, and they understand it full well, is that they need to have music that brings people into a transcendent ecstatic state. But there's also danger in embracing that music because it's so uncontrollable and individualistic. So this is the creative tension in religious music is to what extent do you let people get into an ecstatic state? So the, you could just do a whole essay on churches that allow people to clap to the music and the other ones that don't. <laughs> and, and, and there's extraordinary notions of is drumming acceptable in church music? I mean, there's a bunch of things like that that people don't normally think about. But as soon as you want to understand the real history of music as a source of power, you find out this in many ways is the fundamental tension throughout the whole history of religious music. Uh-huh. It, it might still be relevant in, in that, uh, certainly in American culture, one of the, the few places where uh, music is not regarded simply as entertainment might be in churches. Well, that, you know, and it gets to this whole notion uh, music's not auditory cheesecake. If yeah. People yeah. are using music as a path to divine and to spiritual transcendence. Huh? Yeah. That's pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. That's, something, that's something that takes seriously. Uh, and and it, this, these. Conflicts don't go away. I mean, literally, the most controversial thing in the music world as we speak is this new Kanye West album, Jesus is King. Yeah. And this captures the whole tension uh, at, at the forefront of our culture now, because there's a notion that this is not popular music, that this is, hey, this kind of music is not commercial music. Yet, it testifies also that, they, hey, this is how music is actually used by actual people in real life situations. So the tension never goes away. Mm-hmm. Let's jump way ahead uh, into the 18th century into a chapter called Subversives and Wigs. Um, it seems to me that uh, some of what you're saying, uh, we everyone has believed in t- ever since they saw Amadeus. So how does, how do the, how do Bach, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, how are they, there's, Mozart is subversive, yet at the same time, um, you're, um, you're sort of also part of that is also trying to show how bourgeois he is. Am I wrong? I mean, you're, you're, there's like there is a there's a zero one. There's a plus minus to to these characters. Well, one of the points I make is that music innovation comes from outsiders, mm-hmm. and everyone can see it in modern times because you look at things like hip hop or punk rock or the British invasion or outlaw country music. It seems wherever you look, the Musical styles that have the most impact on society are the ones that represent an outsider viewpoint. Mm -hmm. But people tell me, well, that doesn't really address the past. In the old days, people like Mozart and Bach worked for country and God and worked for the nobility, and they were establishment figures. Uh, And I said, no, you're, you're missing out entirely. In fact, there's not as much difference between Bach and a punk rocker. And I and, and people laugh at this, and I and I can find people that think they know Bach really well, but I ask them, "Do you know about the time Bach spent a month in jail?" And they don't. You know about the time 
Bach got into a knife fight in the street with another musician. Well, no, they don't. You know about the time Bach got into trouble for cavorting with a young lady in the organ loft? No, they don't know about that. They don't know that when Bach went on a business trip for his church, uh, he was gone away for just a few days, but he billed the church enough money for beer to buy eight gallons of beer. I would like to point out, this, this is where I should add some more books to your reading list, because you're, he, he was away for two weeks, actually, a two-week trip, eight gallons of beer. And I don't think that Ted Joya realized that the Royal Navy beer ration at the time was a gallon a day. Okay, so he was just he very was, good. Now that's, he, for, that's, I would say, as, a, as another Lutheran, he was extraordinarily moderate. Okay, well, you know, one, you know, one of his contracts involved him getting free beer from the brewery as, as part of his reimbursement. But well, you know, you know, you, 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 the, you, gotta, the you question, have to drink something. The, the the larger question is, what was Bach really about? And we find that he had constant problems, disciplinary problems for the people that hired him, and was considered incorrigible and, and a scandal in many ways. And this, and this is not just fanciful gossip. This is very relevant to the fact that he was able to do these musical innovations because he was bringing in new sounds into the music that were very controversial. Oh, yeah. He was actually you know, he's involved in the early 18th century worship war. Uh, you know, and, and people said this is vanity, yeah. you know, and he was being extravagant and showing off and all this. Yeah. A, and, a cantata and so goes I, on for 20 minutes in the middle of a service. I mean, for one thing, he, it, really, it really, it takes up a lot of time in the service. I can imagine a lot of parishioners just saying, hey, if we could afford a watch, we would be looking at it. Uh, can't we just go home now? Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so the notion that Bach is this great establishment figure is a myth imposed after the fact. And this happens again and again in music history. And it's, it's the same process I've discussed before is these figures are outsiders, but they become cleaned up and made respectable because the mainstream needs them. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, German nationalism felt they could benefit by turning Bach into a spokesperson for God and country. Just and so they have to clean them up. Parenthetically, what do you think of the, the sort of the, the argument, maybe a little bit too extended, but in the evening in the Palace of Reason of Frederick the Great uh, uh, advocating sort of music as really as entertainment in some ways as a pleasant auditory cheesecake versus an old, you know, stodgy Bach, who's also still a knife fighter, uh, who um, believes that music can change your life? Well, the the rulers always want to defang music. Sure. And they prefer a music that still has its power, but its power is now channeled in acceptable ways. And so, and, and you know, some of these rulers themselves fancy themselves as music critics, and it, they composers. actually did have extraordinary impact on what was allowed and what was forbidden. But you'll never get, if you spend too much time looking at the palace and what happens there, you end up getting a very misleading notion of what's happening in the musical culture because things happen faster in the general culture long before they show up in the hallways of the palace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just before you, before you move on, how, how is Haydn then? How is he subversive though? I mean, he is a, well, he is a court composer. Is he subversive because he eventually cast off the court and, and becomes a popular musician? I mean, how, how, how do you regard him as subversive? Well, Heinz, the perfect example of, of this whole process, because uh -huh. he straddled an era. When he started out, 
he had to be very subservient. You know, he got hired by a noble family. He had to dress as a servant. We see his contract. We know he wasn't allowed to sit with the family at dinner. Of course not. He spoke when spoken to. He met with uh, his, his boss every day and, and took orders of what music was going to be performed. We have letters of him to his boss, of him basically groveling. But during his lifetime, this whole notion of musicians as celebrities took off. And as soon as he got uh, the kind of acclaim throughout Europe that allowed him to change the terms, he began being very prickly and difficult. It's fascinating to look at the letters he sent back home when he was in London. It's, to, you know, now the Estrahazi family, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to write to you very often. I'm so busy here. Leave me alone. Uh, and, and, he's, and now Haydn starts developing all these relationships with young women. And this is one of these great mysteries in music history. But we know when Haydn died, his will is filled with these bequests to women that weren't related to him. Mm -hmm. So you now start seeing a, a Joseph Haydn that looks a little bit more like Mick Jagger. And it was the, the, the very same thing that's going on here. We like to think of him as an establishment composer, but as soon as he had the leverage to get the kind of freedom and independence, uh, he exerted it to the to full extent he could. Mm -hmm. um, let's uh, talk a little bit about a, a theme that's uh, throughout the book. Um, you hit on it, uh, too, when you get to sort of the mid-19th century. You're talking about Wagner and musical nationalism, but you, you write, uh, when I tell people that music is closely connected to violence, a key theme in these pages, they often reject the notion out of hand. Well, first of all, how, so how is music closely connected to violence? Well, this goes back as far as you can, you can trace. Yeah. And there, there are certain biological and evolutionary reasons for it, and certain hormonal things, hormones that are released when you listen to music that bonds people together, and it can be for good or for bad. But soldiers going into war will actually fight better if they're accompanied by music. That's why they actually sent drummers and buglers out on the battlefield. They didn't send a painter to paint on the battlefield. They didn't send a sculptor to sculpt out there. But musicians actually brought their musical instruments on the battlefield. The Spartans, and, played, the Spartans played the flute. Well, no, yes, that's right. They did. They did play the flute. And... And it's the, the curious thing is even the most respectable part of our musical culture, the symphony orchestra, originated in bloodshed. Mm -hmm. Every one of the instruments in the orchestra started out in, in something bloody. You know, the, <laughs> the musical horn was the animal horn, which you cut off the animal you killed. Uh -huh. The uh, musical bow was originally the hunter's bow. It was a weapon used to kill the animal. <laughs> the string on the string instrument were the guts you took out of the intestines of the animal you killed. The hide was made into a drum and now had the magical properties of the animal on the drum. I mean, every instrument in modern times that ends up in this respectable symphony orchestra comes from these bloody origins. Now, people come to me and they say, well, Ted, maybe that was true in the past, but nowadays music really has nothing to do with violence. And, and I start by saying, you know what the largest expenditure the U.S. government makes towards culture? And they think, well, it's the National Endowment for the Arts. I go, no, no, they spend three times as much on military bands. <laughs> And they say, well, Ted, that's just government waste. And then I give this litany, and I prefer not to do it because it's a disturbing topic. Uh -huh. But I say, okay, let's look at all the mass shootings and terrorist events that have taken place at concerts in recent years. <laughs> I go, that shooting in Las Vegas, almost 1,000 people killed or injured. Country music performance. 
The terrorist attack in Paris, the Bataclan nightclub during a heavy metal performance. The attack and the explosion in Manchester, England, <laughs> Ariana Grande concert. In Orlando, the Pulse nightclub. I mean, I, this is not coincidence. <laughs> Music evokes these powerful feelings. That's why killing gangs have their theme songs. Why did Charles Manson need the Beatles song Helder Skelter? Why did the Weather Underground name themselves after a Dylan song? So this idea that music has nothing to do with violence. Well, yeah, if you just read Billboard magazine and look at the charts and the radio, you may not know that. But it, hardly, once again, hardly a week goes by, as we see in Hong Kong or Lebanon just in the last few days, in which music is not incorporated into violent activities. This um, ties in very well with a, a later chapter of yours called The Sacrificial Ritual, in which you begin with two band names, Beatles and Rolling Stones. And then it goes on Beatles, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Grateful Dead, Doors, Who, Beach Boys. And then those are the most influential bands in rock and roll, of course. Um, but what else do they have in common? Um, well, that's right. And this is sort of a, an extravagant gesture I make, but it's revealing. I listen to all these famous bands in rock. We could have Jimi Hendrix, Buddy Holly, Sex Pistols, Allman Brothers, Big Brother, The Holding Company, Nirvana, what do they all have in common? They have a death. They have a. That's a, right. Every, yeah. It's a long list, and it looks like the best bands in rock history, but everyone had a band member die at the age of 40 or younger. Mm -hmm. And in every instance, the death was not a natural cause. It wasn't someone's in bed surrounded by family. And then you have to ask yourself is, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Is this coincidence? If you were an, an actuary working for a life insurance company, you'd look at this and you'd say, we can't give insurance policies to rock music. <laughs> um, it's, and and I look at the whole history of rock music as sort of a sacrificial ritual. And I, I borrow from the theorizing of Rene Girard. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you see it in these lights, it's amazing how everything fits together. I mean, why did rock musicians destroy instruments? on stage. And, and what Gerard would tell you is you need a surrogate victim so they don't kill the musician. Mm -hmm. I mean, because as you know, at Altamont and the other places, there was violence at the rock performance. So the, mm -hmm. the, the destruction of the musical instrument is this cathartic event. But when you, know, this, when you start or, seeing or, that, when you start seeing that, you go back. I, I'm convinced the reason why Mozart, one of the reasons he's the, mo the only classical composer that most people still know is because he died young. Um, not just because he's good, because he died young. Um, but and sacrificing instruments, Liszt used to beat the crap out of pianos until he rendered them to kindling. Right? I mean, he, we're not the only, we're not the first people to uh, destroy instruments on stage. Well, no, and and if you can't destroy the instrument, the rock musician was supposed to go back to the hotel room and trash the hotel. Room. Exactly. Yeah. Whole mythology. Yeah. And the connection to sacrificial ritual is striking. Well, heck, the one of the most popular rock events every year is called Burning Man, where they actually burn an effigy mm -hmm. at the close of the Sabbath. I mean, like I said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And there's once again an idea that this kind of violence is either not a part of music or if it was, it happened long ago. But no, even today, there are very powerful connections between music and violence. And if we don't understand that, we certainly can't channel it and control it or make sure that it happens in a, in a constructive way for society. Mm -hmm. You... Um we're just about to close up here, so I want to I want to put this to you um, that there you say uh, at the end of the book we are faced with a paradox: two different visions of music flourish and they seem incompatible. 
On the one hand, we encounter powerful interests who want music to exist within the predictable formulas of the entertainment industry. Or, on the other hand, it's going to be a subversive uh, force of change. Um, how does this all end? Well, right now we're told we've reached some sort of end point in music where it's now going to be controlled by algorithms, yeah. artificial intelligence, streaming platforms are going to recommend the perfect song for every hour of our day and match our mood, and we'll reach this happily ever after in which all these genre battles and, and nasty, disruptive musicians are shuffled off stage. I, 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 I love when reading that, I realize, oh my God, it's right. We've reached the end of music history. This is what people are saying, as if people haven't said this about other things before. Um, well, that's right. There, and it's interesting to look at other points in history in which the music industry thought they'd reached some end point. Mm -hmm. The classic example is the early 1950s. Hmm. Got the long playing album out there. And the music industry says, we've now got the perfect album for everybody. We've got, they invented mood music. Mm -hmm. they, they had these bachelor pad albums. Mm -hmm. They had sort of these romantic ballads, Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole. I mean, you couldn't get more beautiful than that or more romantic. You had funny novelty songs. You, I mean, there was this one-on-one -on -one matching where you could go through every point in your day and there was the perfect song to match it. And then if five years later, rock and roll shows up and disrupts everything. Mm -hmm. And the music industry was shocked. They thought they had reached this happy end point. But what they don't realize is people don't want a happy end point in music. They want that disruptive power in music. Mm -hmm. And I could give other examples, but I think we're living in one right now where it seems like we've reached this placid stage where music is controlled by these tech companies and we've got to a happily ever after. That won't be the case because not only will there be disruption, people will crave the disruption. And when it comes, they'll embrace it with tremendous enthusiasm. Now, you can't predict in advance exactly what it would sound like. If you could, I, you know, I, I'd be doing it. Mm -hmm. But you can tell that these ideas that, that artificial intelligence and robots are going to control our musical life, that's, that's a joke. It will never happen. <laughs> My guest today has been Ted Joya. He's the author most recently of Music, A Subversive History. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.